ready. And as I said, you can keep eating. Please feel free to eat during the sermon as well. And if you, know, if you want to sneak out and get some more, uh, you can do that. But if you got your Bibles, turn to Colossians 1. We have a fantastic passage she's going to read to us today. I can talk loud. Oh, it's working. I'm going to read, as Jeff said, from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And this is a letter uh, from Paul to the people in Colossians. Colossi. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alice. I'm so looking forward to this, uh, opening the word with you today, this absolutely rich passage. As I was prepping this week, I'm thinking and wondering, thinking about when we're actually going to preach through Colossians, uh, because I got so excited about this first passage and how great this book is, that sometime soon uh, we need to do this entire letter. It's so full. We get to explore today, like I said, a rich passage filled with so much life and so much hope and, and so much gospel and so much goodness on this fall kickoff morning, a morning when obviously we are regathering, regrouping, starting all kinds of new things in school this year. Uh, it's a perfect passage for this morning because it's an incredible passage on the power of the gospel. 
to change and transform lives. And don't you want to change? Who likes being stagnant? Just staying the same and not seeing anything ever change in your life. I hope we all want that this morning. We say we understand the gospel many times. We say, I, I get, I understand Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, and ascension. But then many times in our lives we prove actually that we don't understand it by wanting something more than the gospel to feel okay in life. Like if I just had that thing, I'd be okay. Yeah, I know, I get it, you know, I get it. I remember a pastor I was to one time was telling about, it. he met, and met with a, a teenage girl about 17, and she said, yeah, I get that Jesus is like all, matters and he's all important, but man, if I could just get a couple of the boys to look my way, I'd feel so much better. She didn't quite say it like that, but he, he, he talked to her and, and he said, yeah, okay, those things are important, but Christ can be everything for you. So those other things, yeah, they're important, but they have their proper place. Sometimes we say we understand the gospel, but we prove we don't by wanting something more than the gospel to be okay. So today, we're going to unpack this greeting to the church in Colossae as we look at a few things. The gospel foundation, gospel fruit, and the gospel walk. Those are the three things we're going to look at today. To find out that the gospel is way more than just preliminary for the Christian. We've talked about this before. The gospel was, 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 was bearing fruit here in the, in the church and growing in an ongoing way, a continual way, more than just preliminary for this church. We're going to look at that today by looking at the foundation, the fruit, and then the walk today. You know, as we already mentioned this morning, it's been such a contemplative weekend for me. Maybe it has been for you as well. The, commemorating the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Were you thinking this weekend, like, it doesn't seem possible 20 years? I mean, I just remember, like, the millennium seemed like it was, you know, the big deal. Uh, and it was like, we're 20 years from that. How quick is the next 20 going to go? It doesn't seem possible. But as this, for you this weekend, I know for, as for me, it brought back a flood of memories, a flood of feelings. Everybody knows it's one of those events where you know where you were on that day. You know who told you to turn on the TV probably or who called you on the phone. For me, it was my dad. I was in my early 20s, so I was still sleeping in actually when it happened. Um, but I, I got a call. Wake up, wake up, turn on the TV. I'm sure this weekend has done that for you too. I was reading a fascinating article this weekend. Maybe you saw it on Gospel Coalition website. It was an article this week by a missionary named Rob McWilliams who happened to be on furlough in 2001, furlough from the mission field. He was back home in Florida, living there in 2001. And in this article, he recounted the story of about six months before 9-11, when he was in his apartment building, and he was on the elevator going down from his higher floor, and it stopped at a floor, and the doors opened up. And into his elevator walked three uh, Arab men, and, and their wives walked into the eleva elevator with them. The men were looking stern, serious. The wives were covered uh, head to toe, including face, in black garments. And he felt a bit of concern. Obviously, he was in this tiny space, and the doors opened, and these three men walked on with their wives. And he, he felt a little bit of concern, a little bit of angst, and he thought to himself, I'm okay. I don't need to be afraid. This is America. I don't have anything to be afraid of. So he said hello to the three men and the women as they walked in the elevator, and he was met with some icy stares. 
Over the coming weeks, his wife tried on occasion to strike up conversations in the laundry room with these women uh, at the apartment building, and he was met with basically the same attitude. Well, six months later on 9-11, he was surprised when he woke up that morning and he saw his apartment building, actually it was probably later that night, he saw his apartment building on the nightly news. Who was he riding in the elevator with? Mohammed Atta and two other hijackers six months prior. They lived in the same apartment building. He goes on in the article to recount his increasing hostility his increasing fear and actually bitterness and dislike that grew inside of him, not just for those three men, but for all Muslims, this thing that just sort of overtook him. Here he was, a Christian, a missionary, meant to reach the peoples of the world, Muslims included, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he was bitter. He was resentful. He was angry, writing off a whole people group, like many struggled with post-9-11, maybe you did too. It seemed to be a natural kind of knee-jerk response. What happened with Dan? Did he grow in bitterness, leave the mission field, and continue to grow in his hatred of Muslims? He could have really easily. Like maybe some people even today still feel that 20 years later, but he didn't. He used the gospel on his own heart the grace of God to transform him from the inside out, as we'll see in a bit. Today, it might not be Christians and Muslims, although some of that's still there, but we can list every one of us all kinds of divides right now. And we keep talking about this because they're so real and so prevalent and doing a lot of damage. All the divides we have, Right now, the clear one is obviously vaxxers and non-vaxxers. That's like all you hear about today. There's this great chasm and, and increasingly, you know, barbs and lobs are being shot over the bow at each other or divisions in families or political divisions or just even just thinking of the seemingly out of control nature of the world today, how it feels, how your life feels. As we think, what's the next 20 years going to look like? What will it be like? Well, as you think about all those things, maybe some divides in your own life, maybe interpersonal, maybe family, here's a question for you. What is causing you grief today? Or a bitterness that maybe like Dan was feeling, or a hopelessness today, or anxiety today, and what's the solution for the problems in your life today? Problems that are real, problems that shouldn't be ignored. We're going to look at Paul in his introduction today to the Church of the Colossians for the ongoing work of the gospel for hope today. I, I want today to be hopeful for us. I want it to be full of, uh, of seeing the reality of what's at stake and what Jesus has done. Do you need hope today? I know you do. I know you do. Encouragement today. I need it today. I know you need it today. So we're going to look at, I guess we can call them three tests. Three sort of tests that come out of this passage to see if the gospel has not only come to you initially, but is it continually coming to you in an ongoing way in your life. So three tests we're going to see today. Here's the first one. Let's look at the test of the foundation, the foundation first. Now, we all know the foundation of something is really important. What we build upon is what shapes the structure, supports 
the structure, sustains the structure. When they ripped the carpet up off this floor in here, you know what was under there? Some of you know. <laughs> the foundation was a really old uh, basketball floor that as the carpet came, I see some of you going like, yeah, we, 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 we know what that, it was ripping up with the carpet. I mean, the foundation, if you saw it in here, was like a disaster. And we had to actually end up doing much more work and get equipment we never thought we were going to have to get to get this thing smoothed out. Because if we didn't, would the carpet, new carpet have stuck well to this thing? No, it wouldn't have worked. And it was bumpy and there was ridges and the foundation was not good. We had to really work on it. The foundation of something really matters. And when we build on things other than the gospel in our personal life, in your personal life, as a church, if we build on things other than the gospel, sometimes very good things even in your life, they weren't meant to bear the weight of our life. Like the, like the chair you're sitting in right now is meant to bear the weight of your body, but a marriage, your kids, your church even, your job, your bank account, your physical health. None of those things were meant to bear the weight of your soul. But when they slip away and they are our foundation, what happens? Rather than just become uh, sad, rightfully sad, or discouraged, or, 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 or concerned, which was all right responses, we become totally devastated and unravel in life. And we lose those things, our life comes crashing down if they're your foundation. You know what's odd and kind of a paradox? When they're not your foundation and God is, you know what? You actually enjoy them more. Isn't that a strange thought? You actually enjoy them more than if it's your everything. Because when it's your everything, you choke it out, actually. Because you're so afraid to let it go. Your foundation, what is it? So what's the foundation that produces a person of faith and love, as Paul describes the Christians in verse 4? Here's our, our, sub -point, our, our point. Christians are described, and especially in verse 4, as people of faith and love, which is founded on an objective hope in the gospel. Paul expresses a gratitude here at the beginning of this letter. When he hears that the Colossians are a people full of faith and love, He's never been there. He's actually never been to this church and probably never was. So he's writing to a people he doesn't even know here. Many times when Paul opens a letter, he says, faith, hope, and love. But here, did you notice in verse 4, he says, love, faith, and hope. Why did he mix it up? Let's look at the verses. Why did he switch it up? Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, so it's not just an empty faith, and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Paul talks about the foundation, the gym floor, the foundation of hope that produces love and faith. But what is their hope? He describes it uh, for them as something laid up in heaven for them. It's objective. It's real. It's not just a hope that I really hope things will work out. I just hope they'll work out. Or it's not just hope for hope's sake. You know, you should just be a hopeful person or, or you know, you really should just be a half glass full person. It's not that at all. Paul says there's something stored up in heaven for you 
It's heaven. It's a crown. It's glory. It's an inheritance. And Jesus, who is there, is a real divine person, real, who is returning for you someday. He says it's objective. It's stored. It's there. Too often, we can view the Christian life as a race, and it is a race. Paul says that. But we look at it as a race that I better win. (laughs) I better be out front. I better make sure I'm at the front of the pack in this thing. Because I know there's something good there, but I, I, I better make sure I beat all the others to get there and get it. If that's the way you view heaven and Christianity, then in this first test, it hasn't come to you as a foundation yet. When a heart is born again through repentance and faith and through the gift of the Holy Spirit, as he does that, faith in Christ, it has come to you. And you know, not just maybe in hope of empty hope or just hope and hope. No, you know it's stored up treasure for you there. It's objective and real. It's not like you need to get to the end of the race and hopefully you get first, second, or third prize. You'd even shoot for ninth, right? You want to get that prize? It's already there. It's being stored for you. It's already in the bank, to put it in our kind of terms. It's guaranteed. Talk about a foundation. And when the gospel comes to you, you know the foundation's there. Those who've truly grasped the gospel, to those to whom it's truly come, verse 6 uses those words, it's truly come, it is the foundation of everything. It's what we build off of. It's where their faith and love came from. When it is the foundation, we will be a faithful, loving people. You can let hurts go. Do you know why? Because you know you have a treasure stored up for you in heaven. You can give more than you receive. Why? Because you know you have an infinity of storehouse gifts waiting for you from the Lord. You can stop worrying. Because even if you lose it all now, the treasure up there that's coming... The glory that we wait that's going to be revealed in the final days will make everything you've ever had in your life look like dust. Dust. What's your foundation? What are you built upon? Well, here's a question to ask yourself How do you treat people? How do you treat others? Does your foundation make you, as Paul said, I know of your faith and love because of the hope you have stored up for you? Does your foundation make you loving? How do you treat people? Those like you, those not like you, those that are just weird or that merely bug you even. Rod, in that moment, in the elevator there, the moment after 9-11, his hope afterwards was in something other than the gospel because the fruit he was producing was not fruit of the Spirit. As he grew in bitterness and maybe even hatred against all Muslims. He had forgotten his foundation. He'd forgotten his identity and security in Christ. So maybe he had a sense, he didn't talk about in the article, but maybe he had a sense of his superiority that he needed, he had to feel. Maybe it was a sense of revenge that he wanted to get. Maybe it was how good it made him feel to have an enemy he could watch suffer. 
But something happened to him. He saw the bitterness grow. Something happened to him. He was stopped in his tracks with the gospel. Look what he said. He said, God taught me. I learned. I heard. To talk about our language of our passage. God taught me the malice growing in my heart was not fundamentally different from the malice in the hearts of wicked men like Muhammad Atta. Wow, what a, what a statement of self-awareness. We're all born in sin, he said, cut off from God, restrained only by God's mercy from acting on our every wicked impulse. Now, he said, by God's grace, what was once a growing aversion toward a people group is a God-given thriving compassion with opportunity to live it out every day. Echoing Paul, it's my prayer that our love may abound more and more, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. He, he, he saw that his foundation had been on something other than what he proclaimed to believe with his life, the objective truths and hopes of the gospel. Grace, there he says, came. And it was a leveling field between him and Muhammad that leveled the playing field. He calls it what it is, severe wickedness. He doesn't sugarcoat what Muhammad, Atta, and the others in the elevator with him that day did. But he too was a man like Muhammad. He too could only be saved by grace. He too understand that hope in Jesus produced a faith in love. And so he prayed, make me loving even to my enemies, to those that deserve your wrath and judgment, even God. He had, he had a stored up treasure, a treasure that was Jesus was working now out in his heart. Titus, it's waiting we wait with hope for the blessed hope, Titus says, here Paul says in Titus, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13 says. And you too have to have that objective hope in your heart because all of their foundations will fail you. They will crack. They will distort you and turn you into something you would never want to be with desires that you would never want to have and doing things you never thought you would do much like Muhammad Atta, who didn't have the gospel as his foundation. You have to work that objective hope into your heart. It has to come to you to be a Christian, to know the stored-up treasure, to bear the fruit of faith and love. So let's move on to our second test, the fruit. Let's talk about the fruit. Let's look at the fruit because it's really important. It's the second test. If the first one was the foundation of your life, or our church, you could say, who we are as a people, what are we built on? If, it, if the foundation's the gospel, the storehouse of heaven's gifts for you, the second is the fruit. If you have a proper theology of God, of the Bible, you, you know lots of things about the gospel, yet you don't love people, the gospel hasn't come to you. Now, you might even say, maybe you don't know Christ yet. I mean, even the demons believed. So what's the difference then? Believing that transforms you. How do you treat people was the question. Because when the gospel comes to you, it always 
always, maybe in different speeds and times of life, it always produces something in you when it comes to you. Look at verse 5b, I think. We'll start in 5. He says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And there's our language, which has come to you, verse 6, as indeed in the whole world. It's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood it. Here's a summary for it, the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Now, if you hear this, you say, okay, this is like a, a pet horse for you. You talk about this a lot. I get it, okay. The gospel brings change and power and joy. What's the big deal? If that's your thought or if that's what you say, it proves you haven't got it. You need, we need, I need to hear this, he says. Hear it, learn it. And here's what it does. It produces learners of Jesus, the gospel, who grow and bear fruit. In fact, Paul says here, he says, I know you heard it before. The gospel, verse 5, he says, I know you heard it, the word of truth. It's come through your ears, passed through your mind. It's gone down into your heart. And the day since you heard it, he says again, it's been growing fruit ever since you heard it. The grace of God and truth, he calls it in verse 7, which which is what the gospel is. It's a summary statement. It's the grace of God to you. He says, you learned it. You learned it from this man, Epaphras. Verse 7 there, that word learned. That word learned there. It's basically kind of the verb form of the same word for disciple. That's why, really, you could say that the gospel, as it produces disciples, we'd call them learners of Jesus. A disciple is a learner of Jesus. That's not a point in your outline, but it'd be a great phrase, a little sentence to write down. Because that word even there is the same, it's just a verb form of the actual word used for disciple. A learner. A learner of Jesus, people who learn about him and through him, about his ways and his words and his life and what he did and his second coming, which is going to happen. Paul says it's like, it's like dynamite. It's like releasing something into the water that spreads. A good thing, though. It's like dynamite. And he says it's growing, over, it's growing all over the world. He says the whole world. And in you, ever since. Did you catch those words? Ever since you heard it. That's ongoing. It's not one time. It's not just preliminary. It's not just the doorway. He says, ever since. So on the one hand, yes, it's a body of truth to be believed. Propositions about Jesus's death, burial, resurrection. And let's not forget the ascension. We forget that. But it's part of the gospel. But on the other hand, it has a supernatural, spiritual, dynamite-like power that will transform you from the inside out, grow you, and bear fruit. The gospel bears fruit. 
Where's that talked about in the Bible most prominently? Galatians. You might know Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Good, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So as you think about things right now, your life right now, or the question of the foundation and what you're built upon, what are you experiencing? Is it loving? Is it hopeful? Is it faithful? Is it joyful? If not, then what you lack is fruit. You're lacking fruit. So are you constantly getting angry? I struggle with that one. You find yourself getting angry. You lack the fruit of love. Or are you constantly irritated or just, you're, just, you're anxious all the time? You lack the fruit of peace. Paul knew the secret. It was the internal power of God's Spirit working out the truths of the gospel on his loves and his life. He says at the end of chapter 129, look, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It was the truths and the reality of the gospel that worked and churned inside of him and stirred him and transformed him. Most Christians understand the gospel saves them. You do. I know you do. But you ask the question to most Christians, what grows you, what moves you on then in the Christian life? You're going to get a, probably a ton of different answers. And all of them probably kernels of truth in them, right? You might say obedience. And yeah, there's a real effort that we bring with God for transformation. Sure. You might say effort. Yes. We'd call it even a grace-fueled effort. But can't obedience and effort be just merely external? I mean, it wouldn't be true obedience, I guess, but you can really make it look together on the outside. We learn how to do that about, I don't know, middle of elementary school, right? <laughs> Toddlers don't know how to do that. If they're not too good on the inside, you see it on the outside. But don't we learn how to filter as we get older? You can have a conversation with somebody and behind the wall you're like, I don't want to talk to this person. <laughs> I don't want to hear their problems. I don't want anything to do with this person. But here's your, you're like, yeah, I get it, right? Oh, you, you, you can have that filter to where they don't know what's going on inside. So yes, obedience, of course, can be external, can't it? Or effort. But then it's not really obedience at all because the Bible's concerned with your heart. Jesus wants all of you inside out. Paul is telling in this section, the gospel not only saves you, but it transforms you. It, it grows you. Paul said, I, I'm churning. It's powerfully working inside of me. His energy, his life. It's what moves, propels you. You'd call it gospel-fueled effort then, grace-fueled effort. So if you're a Christian today and you realize that you can't ever, you're just like, I can't work through the guilt. I can't work through the shame. I can't work through the anger. I can't work through the worry that just is eating away inside of me. Go back to what you heard and understood. The doorway is actually the hallway. The doorway is actually the whole entire house from foundation to roof. The gospel. 
Go back to what you heard and understood. Paul says, you heard it since you've heard it. It's been bearing fruit in you if you're lacking that fruit. And it's a sign that you've got the gospel if you understand that in reality, and it's a little bit simplistic, but in reality, at the root of all your problems, your lack of fruit is a failure to apply the truths of Jesus' work, the truths of the gospel, or, or, or to believe them, or to remember again the hope laid up for you in heaven. It's at the root of all our problems. And this passage, it's really about the project of the church. If we're thinking of it only individualistic terms, we always miss out on Paul's letters because he's, he's mostly talking plural you all the time. It's not just you and Jesus. It's the project of the church. What is God doing in a people? And in verse 12 through 14, he describes it even more. Take a look at him. Jump down in the passage to 12. Here's a little more unpacking of the gospel. Verse 12, we give thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The gospel is what he has done for us and to us. For us and to us. He's qualified you. Is that because you were a really qualified candidate? Like top of the line for the job? You're the number one or two resume on the list. Number three, number four, you're in there. I'm qualified for this position. Just give me the job. No, you weren't a qualified candidate. No, he's qualified you, Paul writes. And he's given you an inheritance by delivering you, by transferring you from one kingdom as a transplant, as an immigrant. God's people were always immigrants, refugees. That's just the whole Bible story. He's transferred you from one kingdom to another. Imagine you were, imagine me for a moment, that you were an American in Afghanistan in the last month. You were a contracted employer for the military, and you had moved your family there for a couple years. You kind of knew that things were going to be done there soon, so you think, it'll only be a couple years. We'll go. It's good money. It seems like we can live on a base. We're going to be good and safe. And so you're this contracted employer and you were there. And then all of a sudden this exit happens and the Taliban takes over much quicker than anybody thought. And your family's there in a foreign country. And you realize the danger you're in. Think about it. Your kids are there too with you. And you want to get home because you see things changing quickly. Your friends from the USA are calling you giving you news that maybe you weren't getting there, you realize you're in imminent danger. And so you heard about a couple flights that were hopefully leaving from the airport in Kabul, and so you think, and you, you talked it over with your spouse, we got to do this, we just got to try it. I know it sounds crazy, it looks crazy, but I think this is our only chance to get out of here. And so, you try to make your way to the airport, you just... Def desperately want to transfer from Afghanistan to get home in the U.S., to get your kids safe, to get back there, and you'd even risk your family's life to get there because you know staying is probably certain death, but you manage to get a taxi, and you're there. Your children are huddled on the floor. You're crouched down a little bit as you race through the streets, and you get to the airport. Finally, there's a sea of people there, 
but somehow you manage to push your way through and make it close to one of the gates where beyond the fence you could see some people boarding a plane. What are you feeling right now? What do you imagine right now as you're there, as you reach the guards there at the gate holding machine guns and, and you hold out your passports and maybe all the money you have, you say, please, we just want to get on that airplane. We are Americans. We heard you're letting us out. Here's our qualification. Look at this passport. Here's some money too. And the guard looks at you and he says, no, no lowering the barrel of his gun, and he sends you away with your family as you can see the door of the plane being closed in the background. As it begins to take off. Now imagine if you've been led on that plane in that moment, transferred out of one kingdom to another away from a hostile, tyrannical rule of the Taliban, back to the, the U.S. Imagine what you would have felt. Come on through. Get on the plane. You're the last ones. We've got five seats left. Your family's five. Go. Get on there. This kind of story is emotional. This kind of story really happened probably, but this kind of story pales in comparison to what God has done for us, what he's done for you. You were a citizen of a foreign kingdom, and you didn't even know you needed rescuing. Do you know that? That's grace, dead in sin, enslaved to sin. That's not language of a, a card-carrying passport member. You didn't even know you needed rescuing. You had no qualifying passport. In fact, you were an enemy of the new kingdom. And yet, this new king, Paul says, makes you qualified. He does it by redeeming and forgiving you. And not only that, he picks you up and puts you on the plane. You didn't even have to find your way to the airport. He picks you up and puts you on the plane. Oh, and you see as you're taking off the war-torn ground below you as you lift off in the air and you see the smoking rubble behind you as your heart leaps for joy as it would if you were on a plane out of Afghanistan. That's the power of the gospel, to work like dynamite in your soul when you live in it when you breathe it, when it's your foundation, when you're wanting it to grow fruit in your life. On and on and on, Paul says, that since you've heard it, we continue to apply it, which leads to our last test to see if you know you have it. The walk in your life. What does your walk look like? In the New Testament, when we hear the word walk, it's always referring to the ongoing patterns of your life. Steps, many steps. Paul prays for the Colossians that they continue to grow, continue to be filled with wisdom. We go back up to verse 9 now. And understanding and walk worthy, bearing fruit. Look at verses 9 through 11 with me. We'll read them one more time as we get ready to wrap up here. So from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. I'm, he's, I'm just praying all the time for you, he says. Asking you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk, there's our word, in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Here's our final point. Prayer proceeds, comes before, is always connected to our growth. 
Prayer is growth. Growth in wisdom and understanding in our passage and growth in the understanding of the grace of God that will lead to a maturing in your walk. You will grow power, patience, and perseverance. I don't think we realize, I know I struggle with this, to realize how important prayer is for our spiritual growth or or our evangelism efforts. Prayer is the key to growth in all ways. And always, you could say, in all ways and always. Paul's never met these Colossians, we've said, and yet he prays for them without ceasing, that they would grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding of, of God that would impact their life. I'm convinced and concerned, actually, that we're growing in knowledge in all sorts of other things throughout our week, aren't we? Some of it good, some of it you have to things at work, things with your family, things with the kids' new school schedule this year. And there's no shortage of, of, of consuming of, of information, of teacher newsletters, of stories and articles, of podcasts, of nightly cable news, of entertainment. You name it, we are a people that consume all kinds of knowledge. And we don't realize how much it shapes us. You're a moldable creature. Malleable is the word. You're shaped by what you take in. It's inevitable. That's just the way God made us. What goes in has some effect. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Paul prays here that they would be learners of Jesus. He's talking about an all-church project here. Colossians, I'm praying for you all. Bethany Church, I'm, I'm praying for you all. It's us all together. He's talking about us growing together as, as a body. So he's talking more too than about just Sunday morning, than just what we're doing here. He's talking about what are you taking in? What are you growing in understanding and knowledge about? You'll not be a learner, a a disciple of Jesus with with just Sunday morning. You just can't be. It's only what? What percentage is it of your week? I mean, it's minute if we think about it. Even if you come here a few times a week for something, you add it up, it's still a few hours of your couple hundred hours you have in a week. It's so small. And if that's the only time you're learning, growing, and understanding of Christ, it's impossible, actually. The competing voices will just drown out everything else. He's talking about being part of this project, the Colossians and their church. He's talking about us together being part of Bethany Church and the larger church of Canby, growing together as people in our understanding and in an appreciation of who he is and proclaiming the word to one another, praying for one another, persevering together in this as people. He's talking really about our whole, everything we do. And in particular, I would say this morning, as we're about to start growth groups again, and there's even some, some talk about some other ways in the future we're going to be doing Disciples for Bethany Church. A lot going on right now, actually. He's talking about these ways to grow as a disciple. In fact, this passage was the passage, primary passage of the foundation of our recent small group and the Vine training. And out of it came four Ps. I want you to see them here as a congregation. They come out of this passage, four Ps. And this is what our church is really about. 
and this is what our growth group ministry is about, it's these four Ps. It's people. Seems obvious, right? But you can't do it alone. It's people. The Colossians, I'm praying for you all. It's people. Together, proclaiming. That's proclaiming. It's speaking. It's saying. Proclamation. It's people together. What have you heard since you've heard it and learned it? It's been growing in you and amongst you. It's proclaiming it to each other. Not just me on a Sunday morning, but it's you, neighbor to neighbor, chair to chair, growth group to growth group member, proclaiming the word together. And then it's prayer. As Paul says, I I don't cease to pray for you. Prayer, growth cannot happen without prayer. And here's one that we need to think about that's important, persevering. Why? It's hard. And church life is hard. And church life is weird. You've heard me say that many times. It's weird. What we're doing here is strange. We're gathering from all different places and backgrounds and stages of life, and we're saying, we're in a mission together. Really? How often does that work in many places? Unless there's a paycheck attached to it, hardly ever, right? Yeah, it's weird. People proclaiming in prayer, persevering together, constantly growing in maturity towards Christ. That's the mission of our church, helping people follow Jesus. That's the mission of our growth groups, learning Jesus together as we grow. That's what it means that the gospel changes everything. The foundation that bears fruit, it's maturing, ongoing, persevering was the words Paul used here. Strengthen with power and endurance and patience. We do it, we get to do it together. We get to. That's youth group. Wednesdays, it's an age and stage group coming together to follow. That's Sunday school. That's men and women's Bible studies. It's all of that. Today we get a picture of the gospel, the foundation, the fruit-bearing truth. But here's what we want to close with as we come to the Lord's table. The gospel is Him. The gospel is Jesus it's not just about Jesus, it is Jesus. It's him. He is the way. He doesn't just point us to the way. He's the way. He doesn't just point us to the truth like teachers of other religions. He is the truth. He is the life. He is your goodness. He is the pilot of that plane. He is the companion on the elevator when you're tempted to hate It's not Jesus and anything else. It's just Jesus. So if you're angry today, you're saying, I have Jesus, but I also need. If you're anxious today, you're saying, I, I have Jesus, but I-, but I also need this. If you're unable to forgive someone today, you're saying, yeah, I have Jesus, but I also need. If you're worrying today, you're saying, I- yeah, I have Jesus, but I also need As we come to communion today, I want you to take a couple minutes and I want you to ask Jesus to show you what's your but also? (laughs) What's your, yeah, I get it, but I also need, and it might even be a really good thing, but ask the Lord to show you and reveal to you what's your but also that's causing you to lack the fruit that Paul wanted for us and the Colossians. So as our worship team comes up and prepares, and there's cups on your table there, pass